Hi, everybody. Welcome to the official RBYA podcast. We hope that whatever content we bring to you, whether it be messages or interviews or whatever else it may be, we hope that it would be edifying, that it would help you grow in maturity and in faith and the, in the knowledge of God. And we also hope that you stick around for any future announcements or updates. We hope you enjoy. Good evening. Good evening. Okay. Welcome to all of you. You didn't have as hard of a day as yesterday, so I'm expecting a little bit less sleeping as snoozing tonight. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open God's Word with me in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we continue our journey on this great topic about what does it mean to be made in God's image. And uh, if you remember, we have uh, talked about the fact that God created us in His image and likeness. And we're not the product of randomness. We are not the product of some sort of accident or some sort of a chemical uh, come-together, chemical soup that just organized itself somehow into something that is us today, an intelligent being. And I pointed out that God created each one of you, each one of us, in a very specific, very unique way, very tailor-made. You are each one of you created, knitted by God, in your mother's wombs. Each one of you, by the way, has a unique set of fingerprints. And I, I, heard, I know you heard this before, but nobody in the history of humankind until now has had the same fingerprints as you. Nobody will have in the future. Even among identical twins, the fingerprints are different. You are not an accident. And God created you to be a man or a female for a purpose. And that's what we talked yesterday, that God doesn't make accidents. That God has a plan for your life. And instead of being confused or listening to the world out there, instead of even listening to your own emotions, you need to talk to yourself, don't listen to yourself. By the way, that's a good reminder. Don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this early on, and, and he said it because, for example, in Psalm 43, at one point, you see David talking with himself in a counseling session, if you will. He says, why are you downcast in myself, my soul? And he's imagining that he's having a chat with David. David with David. And then he says, praise the Lord. Remember all his goodness. Because not, I don't know about you, but there are moments in our lives when we are just feeling down and discouraged because we're filled with a bunch of lies and emotions. And we are told in the Scriptures that we should not submit ourselves to our emotions, but to God's truth. Now, I don't want to, you to hear me that I, I'm saying to totally disregard your emotions. Because I think God wants to take control even of our emotions, but we cannot be led by our emotions. We need to be subjected ourselves or subject ourselves to God's Word. So yesterday we talked about, last night, we talked about what does it mean to be created, the fact that God created us male and female. And tomorrow I'm going to expand a little bit more about what is the picture of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood according to the Scriptures. And I want to emphasize according to the Scriptures, not according to American culture, Romanian culture, or whatever culture we come from. That's important, no? We want to make sure that we are following Christ and His Word, not even sometimes not even the examples we have in our own lives. Not that necessarily they're wrong. It's just that we want always to make sure that the examples we have are always 
according to God's word. With that in mind, though, I want us to look today at what's the cause of all the problems in the world. How is it we have so much confusion? How is it that we have so much suffering and so much evil in this world? And Genesis 3 is the answer for that. By the way, I just want to take one second here and tell you that every person in this world has a worldview. A worldview means that you have some lenses through which you see the world, through which you act in this world. And usually without realizing, each person out there, including each one of you, lives their lives according to how you respond or answer these four questions. First is, where does life come from? Where does life come from? Second, what's wrong with this world? Thirdly, how do you fix it? And fourthly, what's our purpose in this world? And in the biblical framework, we, we know what the Bible says. Where do we come from? What does the Bible say on that? Anyone? God created us. God created us. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world we live in, according to the Bible? Sin. Evil. And how do you fix it? Anyone? What's God's answer to fixing the evil and suffering in this world? He sent Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, to live and die and resurrect for whoever puts this trust in Him. All of us are called to put this trust, our trust in Him. To repent and believe. And what's the purpose of our life? In Him, from Him, in Him, and for Him. We live our life for His glory. Now you see, there's other ways in which you can answer this question. For example, if you have an atheist friend or someone who doesn't believe in God, he says they were coming from where? From nowhere. There was probably a big bang, and I said that doesn't actually answer your question because it has to be someone behind the big bang. But he says, oh, we just come from nothing then what's wrong with this world? Oh, nothing is wrong. Evil is actually something that is subjective. You decide what's evil for yourself as I decide what's right for myself. But that doesn't really work, does it? Because a lot of people you see in your life are suffering, real suffering. And we all agree that there are certain things that are common and wherever we go in this world as being evil. We recognize that. Rape is evil. Killing innocent lives is evil. So how do you fix that? In a world where they don't have Christ, the way people fix it is by appealing to all kinds of methods, whether it's behaviorism. And I talked to you about this idea that in psychology that it's about how, where are you raised, in what environment, and that influences your behavior. And if you want to change that, just put that person in a different environment. But it doesn't really work, does it? Because you have kids who are grown, growing, up, growing up in really wealthy families, well-to-do schools, and they're still messed up. There are others who say, no, no, the way you fix it is by just following your instincts. You're a, a sexual animal. Freud said that. Just follow your instinct. That's not good either, is it? And look what's going on. You cannot just do that because you're actually hurting people around you. And what's the purpose in the world if you don't have God in the picture? There's no purpose. We're just here for a little bit and that's it. Carpe diem. Live the day and that's it. And I want you to go back to the Scriptures and see your life through the framework 
of God. God created you for a purpose. And if you want to know what's wrong in your life, I want you to look with me in Genesis 3. Because even though this event took place millennia ago, this still has an impact in your life and my life. Adam's sin affects us still today. So with that in mind, I just want us to look at Genesis 3. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to try to just read one verse at a time and try to explain it as much as I can. And then we can keep moving forward. And at the end, I want to tell you before I finish, or after I finish, we're going to sing a song and then I'm going to go in some Q&A. I have a bunch of questions that you guys put in that box. And I'm, trying, I'm going to try to answer as many as possible tonight. I'm hoping that Val will come in time too, so help me out as well. Okay, let me um, go on Genesis chapter 3 here. And here's what God's Word says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God has made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Let's stop there. Who is interfering in God's very good plan and in very good environment? There's a beautiful garden. God creates Adam. He creates Eve. Everything seems to be just fine. And then all of a sudden, we have a new character here. Who's, who's the character? The serpent. Now, who do you think the serpent is represented by? Who do you think impersonates the serpent? Satan. Actually, the Bible talks about the great serpent as being Satan in different parts of the Bible. In Revelation, several times we're mentioned, we are told that the serpent is Satan himself. We're not sure how exactly... He ended up in this garden for sure. God allowed him to be there. No, because God is still in control of all things. But he's coming in there and he's messing with God's creation and God's plan. And interesting, who does he go to ask a question? Who does he go to? To Eve. Now, who received the mandate originally? Who was God talking to primarily before this? to be fruitful and multiply. Who's he talking to primarily? Who he gave the, this, this charge? To Adam. Even though Eve was there probably, he, she heard some of this. We are not so sure if she was there present when she got the mandate. For sure she knew about it because she says something about this. But I want you to see how Satan wants to distort and usurp God's design for humankind. God creates Adam to be the leader of his family, and what does Satan do? He goes to the queen bee. He doesn't go to the king, if you will. He goes to the woman. And what does he say to her? Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, very interesting. What do you find this interesting about this question? What is the question meant to do? To what? Manipulate. What else? Create doubt. It's very interesting. He doesn't go out there outright saying, God did not say this. He just comes with questions. Questions that I'm just asking. Have you had those friends? Hey, I'm just, I'm just asking. But you know that they're not just asking. They're actually telling you something through the, with the question they're asking. And what's, is he, what does he imply through this question? What does he imply? That God what? That God is dishonest. That probably they didn't hear God very well. That probably they didn't pay attention to God's word. They start to question, he starts to question God's word. 
and he makes them question God's word. Did God really say, by the way, that Satan's strategy even today has been for millennia and it's going to always be that? Questioning God's word. Does God really say this in his word? Was this, were this really his words? Do you really, did you really listen well? Did God really say you're not, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? You see also the way he's asking the question. He's asking, did he say that you're not allowed to eat from any of the fruit? Very interesting. That's not true, no? Because God never said that you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees. Actually, he said the opposite. What did God say? You're allowed to eat from all the trees, but one. But one. He's questioning God's goodness. Questioning God's goodness. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. This is from NLT, by the way. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, Eve was almost right, wasn't she? She was not allowed to eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, but what does she add to it? She's not allowed to touch it. God never said you're not allowed to touch it, but she's adding to it. She wants to make sure that it's very confined to God's rules and in, you, you can see how she's actually been thinking about this, and she wanted to stay as far away from it as possible. Nevertheless, probably she thought about this. She thought about going after the fruit that she's not supposed to eat from. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What does Satan do next? He doesn't just question God's word. What does he say here? What does he do? He's actually questioning God's integrity. God said that, but he doesn't mean it. He doesn't actually keep his word. You cannot just trust God. Who is this God, by the way? Actually, someone wants to keep things from you. He wants to keep all the good stuff out of you, from you. He knows that if you do these things, you're going to be like him. Pretty much he's telling Adam and Eve that God is not good, and he doesn't mean what he says. He's withholding good things from you. By the way, that's the lie that you hear all day long from Satan. You know what God's word says, especially if you grew up in a church. You're like, yeah, I know that that's not true. But Satan comes to you, and he says, man, but what if? What if God is withholding something from me? What if my parents mean well, but they don't know that I'm actually wanting to be happy, and they don't want me to be happy? They keep telling me, don't do this, don't do that. I think I know better. I think I know better. Now, listen to how the NLT puts it here. And by the way, what, what is he telling them or telling her that if she eats, she's going to be what? Like whom? Like God. You see, God doesn't want you to be like him. You can be God's. You can be the one who discerns what's good and evil. You don't have to have a God who tells you what's good and evil. You can decide what's true. Isn't that the world we live in today? Each one has their own truth. 
And you decide what's true for you because what's true for you might not be true for me. In other sense, I am the God of myself. I am the one who dictates how my life goes. Nobody tells me what to do. That's the promise of Satan. And guess what the woman does next? The Bible says here in LNT, puts it, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. I want us to just pay attention a little bit to this temptation process. And by the way, isn't that how our hearts also work? We're told, hey, uh, don't go, go on the trail. If you go on the trail here, don't pick up that purple flower because it's the state flower of Colorado. Excuse me. To be honest, I never knew that the state, states have a, a, a flower. And to, just to see my sin, I was looking for a purple flower. Before that, if you told me about flowers, I would not care about flowers. But yesterday on the, uh, on, on those, on the trails, I'm looking for the purple flower. Because I'm tempted to see what's the state flower here, and I wonder, can I get close to it? You see, we're told, hey, you're allowed to do all the flowers in Colorado, but just don't touch that one. And guess where our minds go? Purple flower it is, baby. (laughs) I'm going to make a little crown and see if anyone sees me. That's our hearts. We're drawn to that. You're told, hey, you can eat everything from the fridge. Don't touch that food because it's your dad's or your mom's. Guess where you're going to look at? I wonder what's kept away from me. What's kept away from me? And you're going to start look at it, and you start smelling it, and you're like, hmm, man, for sure, this is all better than all the other stuff I have in the fridge. Imagine her looking through this. And you see the Bible says here that the woman, she saw that the, the tree was beautiful, very interesting the language here, the tree, she saw the tree was beautiful. She has a desire to get what's beautiful. If it's something beautiful, it's nice. I'll take it. Hedonistic. This idea that I am the center of the universe. If I want something, I need to have it. If I see something beautiful, that should be mine. And I'm actually upset with the world that that's not mine. And I'm going to make everything I can to make sure that I take over that. Because I look at it and I want it. See, she saw the tree was beautiful. And then she, the Bible says that the fruit looked delicious. The fruit looked delicious. I will have what I, what I want. A covetous urge. Then it says that she wanted the wisdom it, that it would give her. I want to try it on my own. I want it to have the wisdom, the power it gives me. I want to try it. Nobody can tell me that I should not try that. I do what I want with my life. Very interesting, isn't it? People tell us all the time, hey, don't be stupid. There are others who have been there and done that. Learn from their mistakes. And you're like, ha, ha, ha. They haven't done it my way. You look to the Bible and Solomon is a great example. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, read that. And you'll see, he says at one point, I just wanted to do whatever my heart wanted to do. And he tries all these crazy things. And he goes out of his way to try all these things, to party more than anyone else. And he parties for 150 days. The Bible says that then he goes on to, and he says, I didn't, he couldn't find happiness in that. Then at one point he says, I started to build 
buildings and I started to have gardens and all this stuff. The Bible says that he worked 15 years to build this beautiful house that nobody in the history of Israel ever had. At one point he says, I had, I had a bunch of servants and, and I had a bunch of people under my, my subjection and they were working for me and I thought that if I don't do anything in my life just to be served all my life, that would be great. He said, I tried to have money and find happiness in money. And he had 25 tons of gold, the Bible tells us, his income a year. Then at one point he says, I tried women. And that's an understatement because he had a thousand women. Can you imagine if you were one of his women? You would see him every three years in something. Yes, I'm one of your wives or concubines. And then he says, I try all this stuff. And in verse 11, Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, And as I looked at all these things, I thought, they're just nothing. They're all in vain. They won't bring you happiness. And if you don't understand what vain is, there's a comma in there, and it continues. It says, it's like chasing after the wind. Now, I don't know about you, but if I would see a guy here running with his running gear, and 11,000 feet or whatever, running around, and at one point we stop the guy, and I'm like, man, what are you doing? Oh, I'm chasing after the wind. Now, you, wouldn't you be crazy to say, hey, I have better tennis shoes than this guy. I have better gear. I'm more trained. I am acclimated than, better than this guy. I'm going to go and chase the wind myself. I'm going to catch it before him. If you do that, they probably, I'll tell you and that fellow, they probably should see a doctor. Because chasing the wind, in case you don't know, you cannot ever catch the wind. Just in case you don't know. But no, no, no. You, we are smarter today. We are saying, no. Andre, don't know, man. We, we developed this app, and we are smart right now, man. We actually can, can feel the movements of the wind. We have this net thing that we can just stay here with the drone. We actually can catch the wind, dude. And I'm telling you, you cannot do that. But isn't that the way our hearts work, that we think we know better? We think we know better. Now, granted, Eve doesn't have much history here, she doesn't have anything to look back to. She doesn't know that Satan is such a deceiver, but we do. We have all the history of Old Testament and New Testament and the history of humankind to tell us that. But you see that what's happening here, the temptation. It comes to you very subtle, by the way. And, and by the way, temptation comes usually through something good. God creates something good and Satan comes and distorts it. That's how it comes. It's not totally outright evil. There are very few situations where you're tempted with something outright evil. You see, a lot of people, when they think about temptation, they think about Satan coming with them with this uh, horns and with a pitchfork red and like, whoa, for sure I'm going to stay away from that. Satan doesn't come like that, does he? He comes this, disguised, disguised as an angel of light. He lures you in. Oh, it's just a little bit of fun here. It's just a little bit here and there. It's something innocent. Looking at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's something innocent. Sometimes some of those things, they're not even evil in themselves. But the motivation is evil and selfish. Going back to here to our text here, we see that God allows this to happen, and what's going on next? She gave to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate it too. Now, this is a fascinating statement. Where was Adam all throughout this time? What was he there? What was he doing? Huh? He was not doing his job. He was a passive husband. He was probably looking at her and wondering, I wonder what my woman will do. I wonder how she talks with that man, when she talks with that snake. Look at that snake. He's talkative. Look at that fruit. He knows this is wrong, but he doesn't intervene. Passive husband. Allowing his wife to be drawn into sin. She gave to Adam who was nearby, and he ate. Now, what are the consequences of sin? Verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame of their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Very interesting what the Bible seems to be saying here, the consequences of sin. What are there? Shame and guilt. Why is there shame and guilt? Because they disobeyed. Have you ever done something when you were little that was wrong? Do you remember when your parents told you don't, don't play with it, that, that football in the house because you're going to, or soccer ball in the house because you're going to hit something? And guess what happened? You're going to hit something and you broke it. And what are you going to do? You're going to try to put that thing back together as much as you can. Find the super glue, hide it, and put it somewhere in the back. Nobody would see it. Or you would run somewhere and hide. Why is that? Why do kids run when they do something wrong or they hide? Because they're feeling guilt. You feel the shame. You realize that you've done something wrong. It's an innate built. God allowed us, Romans 2 says, to have an internal referee that tells us that when we do something wrong, that that was wrong. And this is what happens here too. They covered themselves because something has changed. Interesting. And what parts do they cover themselves? Or what parts do they cover? They're private parts. They became an embarrassment and a cause of shame. Why is that? Because all of a sudden their relationship has been marred by trust. By, excuse me, by mistrust. Their relationship has been marred by mistrust, by doubts, by fear. And all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a marital bliss was not anymore a marital bliss. Very interesting. The most intimate part of Adam's and Eve's relationship has been impacted forever. That's why they're covering themselves in their private parts. Because there's a problem there. By the way, God created us as sexual beings and He designs designed sexual intimacy to be enjoyed only in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. This is the Bible's pattern and the only setting for sexual intimacy. Again, sin, sin brings a distortion of sexual intimacy, both in marriage and outside of marriage. And you see it here. There's already problems. And I won't go into details, but in the marriage, there's problems ever since Adam and Eve. And it's problems even when you get married. For people who are married, you know what I'm talking about. I do a lot of counseling situations where there's problems, especially in the intimacy part. And as someone said this, and I think it's right, if intimacy works in a marriage, that's 20%. If it doesn't work in a marriage, that's 80%, especially from a man's perspective. 
And why is that? Because we're sinful being. We've been marred, infected, affected by sin. And Adam and Eve feel this. But you see, their sin did not just affect their marriage or their intimacy, but it also affected their, the, the relationship outside the marriage. And especially sexual intimacy has been gone outside the marriage since this happened. Again, it went beyond what God has instructed in His Word. And you find out throughout the Scriptures that now, after the sin here, you have fornication and promiscuity. And for the ones of you who don't know what I'm talking, uh, talking about, fornication and promiscuity is sex outside of marriage. And the Bible forbids that. Because if you don't realize, you're giving away something of yourself. When you are engaging in sexual intimacy beyond the bounds of marriage, you're giving something of yourself that you're not supposed to give. And not just that, but you are breaking, if you will, God's organized or God's formed plan for your life in which he says that, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're denigrating that. If you have a Bible, I want you to read 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. If someone opens up there, I want you to just stand up and read it for us. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 20. Just stand up and read it. Amen. Thank you. So when you're giving your body to a woman or to a man outside of marriage, you're actually giving something that belongs to God and that's also belonging to a context of marriage. You are sinning. Let me be very clear. You are sinning. And I know in our world today, it's something just normal for people to live together and have sexual intimacy before they get married. I want to tell you very clearly, that's not God's plan for you. That's a sin. And you don't have to see if you're sexually compatible with someone. That's a lie from Satan. You need premarital counseling to, need to see if you are compatible with someone. You need to go to a pastor and talk with them about, hey, are we actually compatible as believers? Are we both believers? Are we equally yoked or not? But I promise you, you don't have to try out all these things to be sexually compatible. Again, that's a lie that is fed to you through all venues. And again, it goes back to this question. Did God really say? And the Bible says, yes, he did say that this is a sin. I want to make it very clear because a lot of you feel pressured from boyfriends, girlfriends, and you think it's just normal because everyone does it. And I want to tell you, it's not God's design for you. There's not something that is okay with God. It is a sin. Yes, God can forgive you, but once you engaged 
in sexual intimacy with someone, something is taken away from you and is not going to come back. Yes, God can redeem any kind of situation, but again, I want you to remember this. It's not according to God's plan for your life. A second problem that we see, a consequence of, of sin in, in terms of sexual intimacy, this nakedness that is, if you will, covered, and it's uncovered in some other situations, adultery. Adultery is another way through which we sin against God's design. God condemns adultery, by the way, and adultery happens when you're married with someone and at one point have intimacy with someone else instead of with your spouse. And this is condemned by God even through one of his Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Jesus talks about it. Why? Because sexual intimacy is the most intimate symbol and sign of the marriage covenant. When that is broken, that is a very hard thing to regain, the trust. Can God redeem those situations? Yes, He can. I've seen it in the past. But please, don't play with fire. Homosexuality. This is another way in which sexual, sexuality is perverted by sin. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, I want you to read with me Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to verse 32. So if you open there, please read that with me. This is just one of the passages. There are many others. I'm going to read another one later on, but there's many who talk about homosexuality as being a sin. So if you open there, would you mind standing up and reading for us? Go for it. Yes, all the way to 32. Inventors of evil things disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, heaven embraces without much discussion, insatiable and merciful, knowing the judgment of God, but they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Amen. Thank you. I'm not sure if you paid attention to this, but homosexuality is a judgment of God on people. And I want you to see that God puts this sin with a lot of other sins. And if you don't know what homosexuality is, just read Romans 1, and you see men that changed pleasures or, or exchanged it the way that God designed them to have pleasure for women for people of the same sex. And by the way, God condemns this as He condemns other sins as well, but this is a sin. And this is not something that happens culturally, by the way, because again, if you look down in this text, He also condemns things like maliciousness, hate, envy, murder, quarreling. And if you want to say, oh, Paul was just talking contextually here. He was just talking about the Roman uh, Empire or the Roman context here. He doesn't actually mean homosexuality as we know it today. Or he doesn't condemn marriage among people of the same sex. Actually, he does. Jesus does condemn it. And he says in Matthew 19, for example, when he's asked about marriage, he says, in the beginning God created a male and a woman, and that's how it's supposed to be. Guys, there's so much written out there, and I, I want to encourage you to not be... Um, fooled by all the so-called Christians who think that homosexuality is just fine and try to explain away their sinfulness. By the way, there's a really good book out there by Robert Gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N, professor at Pittsburgh Seminary. I don't know how, uh, if he's still there, but he wrote this 500-page book, Homosexuality in the Bible. And he goes through all the texts from Hebrews, from all the ancient times, and he points out that this is a sin. Don't, don't play into this idea that, oh, I was just created this way. Guys, you'll see that there are consequences of, our, of sin, of Adam's sin, and yes, we can even say that there's probably in the future they will prove, even though it's not proven that someone is born this way, but even let's say, let's assume hypothetically that someone is born with a with a propensity towards homosexual behavior, still, that doesn't excuse sin. The fact that you have an adulterous desire or you have a desire for promiscuity doesn't excuse sin. The fact that I, I like women and I, I am married, but then I go home and I said, honey, I was gone for a week, you know, but I, I'm, I'm born like this. I just want to have sexual intimacy with women and I had to go to see some prostitutes. Do you think my wife will buy that? For sure that she doesn't. She'd be crazy if she does. I cannot excuse sin. Again, homosexuality is another way in which sin has perverted sexuality. Another way is travest travestite. Men who dress like women or women who dress like men. In the Bible, we're told about that. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. This is an abomination in front of God. Another way, transgenderism. Even though we don't have specifically this in the Bible, we are told that men should not act like women and women should not act like men. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. And if someone has that, I wanted to read this because it's important. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 14 to 15. 
You can also read it from there if you want. Yeah, and here contextually, again, it meant something specific, that, that women were supposed to dress in a specific way, carry their, their hair in a specific way. Men were supposed to carry their hair in a specific way. Again, we cannot generalize that today. Any, any guy who has long hair, now we should be uh, guilty o- over this verse. That's not what it says here. It's just you cannot act like a woman if you're a man. And if you're a woman, you should not act like a man. That's not God's design for you. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. I want us to look at that too. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. It's just right there. Amen. Again, it's very clear that Paul says this is what keeps you away from the kingdom of God. If you commit these things, you'll not enter in the kingdom of God, period. And it's not me that says that, guys. This is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, such of this were you. It means that at one point in your life, probably you committed acts of homosexuality or promiscuity, but you ask forgiveness from God and you haven't continued in this pattern of sin. You are not continuing to habitually sin this way. That's the mark of a Christian. A Christian doesn't live in sin, doesn't commit sin willingly. He wants to fight sin and is not identified by sin. That's why there's not such thing as gay Christians. There are people who struggle probably with different different temptations and different struggles. A Christian who struggles with same-sex attractions or with heterosexual attractions, but you cannot identify yourself according to your struggle. Because a Christian is a born-again person, a new creation. Again, I feel like there's fads out there that, that really pull you in. And I want to tell you guys, go back to the Scriptures. Go back to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13. First Corinthians five verses nine to thirteen. Anyone? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What is Paul saying here? If someone declares themselves Christians and he lives this type of lifestyle, you should not associate yourself with them. And he said, I'm not talking here with the world because otherwise that means that you're going to be totally isolated from the world. The world doesn't have your standards. You cannot ex- expect 
the standards, the biblical standards for the world. That's just not reasonable. But you, can, you should expect biblical standards for the ones who, could, who call themselves Christians. So what does the Bible say you, should need, you need to do with those people who say that I am a Christian homosexual or a Christian adulterer or a Christian promiscuous person and I don't care what you call me? And then they say, don't judge me. What does Paul say? Actually, you should judge them. You should judge them. Because you're not actually loving them if you don't say that this is sin and they're heading towards hell if you don't tell them that this is sin. It's a pretty strong statement I realize I'm making, but I want you to, to embrace what Paul is saying, what the Word is saying. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, the broken, the consequences of sin, again, they go beyond just the way that intimacy and sexuality is affected and marred by sin. You see in verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Very interesting how he replies here. We, we see the consequence of sin is also a broken relationship with God. Before this, they were walking with God, no problem. And all of a sudden now, they're, fear, they're fearful of God. They're hiding from God. They don't want to see God. Why is that? Because they know that when they see God, they're going to be, what? Faced with their sin. So they want to, in a sense, they want to hide from Him. And now in our culture, we want to hide God from ourselves. We want to cancel God. We want to cancel the Bible. Have you ever wondered, why in the world would people burn Bibles? What's so bad about the book? Why don't they burn other books? Because the Bible is a mirror that tells you that you're a sinner. And people want to get away from it. Or they look at the Bible and they're like, oh, it's just a book. Or it's not inspired. Or it's not inerrant. Or it's not infallible. I mean, it, doesn't have, it has to have errors. It has to be contradictory. It has to be written by human beings because it convicts me and I don't like it. That's a big thing. And God, in His graciousness, He looks for us. Where are you? Where are you? But again, don't miss this. There's a broken relationship with God because we feel guilt and blame. And you see verses 22 and 24, God, not only He doesn't agree with what they've done, but He also sends them away from the garden Verse 22, the Lord God said, look at the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will eat, live forever in the state of separation from God. And what does God do? So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And he put the cherubim there. Their sin broke the relationship with God. Sin brings a broken relationship with God. Verse 11 to 13 and verse 16, sin also breaks a relationship with others. The concept of sin here is a broken relationship with others. Verse 11 to 13, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you to not to eat? 
The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she blames the serpent. What happens all of a sudden in this beautiful marital bliss? When sin enters in, what do they do? What do they do? Blame each other. Oh, not me, not me, God. It's my wife. And the wife looks at him, seriously? It's not me. It's the serpent. And the serpent looks and there's nobody else to look to. But you try to blame someone else. You blame shift. When you are put the spotlight on your life and you are told, hey, you're a sinner. What's the first reaction? Denial. Angry. And then you blame shift. Well, have you looked at yourself? Did you look at yourself? Who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? And then you probably cut off the ties with that person because you don't want to hear from them anymore. You feel convicted. Broken relationships. Victimhood. Lack of responsibility. Even blaming God for how he made Eve. You made her. It's your fault. God, it's your fault you made me like this. That's why I'm sinning. Have you ever heard this or maybe felt like this? We can never excuse sin on our genetics. We can never excuse sin using our genetics. You can never say, because my parents were alcoholics, that's why I'm a drunkard. That doesn't work. And again, with any other thing, we cannot excuse it. And by the way, genetics are also marred by sin. And we probably are born with all kinds of propensities in this world. But again, there's never excuse to sin. Broken relationship also with the creation. Verse 17 to 19. You see, it says here, to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Sin has impacted even the way we relate with creation. And what's the solution? But before, before that, I just talked about a few things that sin has impacted. I wanted to, to remember that sin has impacted pretty much every area of our life. I don't have time to go through all of them, but sin has infected everything. That's why when you heard the term total depravity, I don't think that's a, that's a right term because it means that you are so bad, as bad as you can be. I don't think that that's right. What I think it should be is more like it... it pretty much impacts every little area of your life. Sin has infected every little area of your life. Imagine if I had a cup of water here, and I have cyanide, and I pour a little bit in this cup of water, and I shake it a little bit. Would you drink out of it? Why not? Because I just pour a little bit. Because you know that has, that had permeated all the cup, and you know that this dangerous, actually is going to be lethal for you. That's what the Bible seems to be saying about sin. That sin has infected every area of our life. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be at any point in time because not even uh, Hitler was as bad as he could be at every point in time. What it's saying is that we are having a nature that is impacted or infected by sin. 
And that sin, by the way, separates us from God. When we are in that nature, with that nature, we're born with that nature, we are born separate from God. And I want you to, to know that when we talk about dead in your sins, it doesn't mean that you're totally um, not spiritual, that, that you cannot actually have any spiritual inklings, because there are Hindus out there, and there's many Muslims out there that have spiritual inklings. There are many people who seek after God. The problem is they're not seeking after the right God. What dead in sin means is that there is a separation between us and God. That's what actually death means, no? There's a separation between body and spirit. And the Bible, when it talks about being dead in our sins because of our sin, our sin nature, it means that we are born being separated from God. Imagine this huge abyss between us and God. We're separated. And spiritually, we cannot do anything to get to God. There's nothing we can do. That's why God is the one who initiates, even in the garden, He's the one who initiates going after us. He's the one who initiates promises. He's the one who initiates looking for Adam. He's the one who initiates a solution. And if you will look at here with me as scriptures, you see that what He initiates in verse 15 in chapter 3, it's a promise. What's the promise? I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, but he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. God's solution is, I'm going to bring a descendant. I'm going to bring someone, an offspring. And this is a singular. It's not like talks about plural, a bunch of offsprings. No, one. And who do you think it talks about here? About Jesus. He's going to come, come one day and He's going to make a way for you to be right with me. He's going to pay for your sins. And by the way, another way that God solves some sort of, a, of the situation here in a way that He still wants to have some sort of a relationship with them is by Him, verse 20, interesting, verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God didn't like the way that they work their, their leaves as a skirt to protect their own shamefulness. And God says, no, 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 you don't realize your sin needs shedding of blood, of innocent blood. Because for him to make those clothing, he needs to kill some animals. And this is a picture, by the way, all throughout the Old Testament, those animals who are dying innocently in behalf or for the sins of people are a picture of what Christ is doing for us at the cross. And has done for us. Where he took our sins away. Where he took his own, and on his own our guilt, our penalty. And the Bible says that he, before even that, he lived the life that you and I cannot live. That's why he didn't come on a Monday and die on a Friday. He came and lived 33 years on this earth so that he can live in a way that you and I cannot. He lived sexually right. He lived in a way that was right with God, right with his parents, right with others. He lived inwardly a life that was not characterized by lust. Can you imagine that? He was fully God, or truly God, truly human. And, and led by the Holy Spirit, he lived a life that you and I cannot live. And he died on the cross. Listen, guys, he died on the cross, not only to forgive your sins, if you believe in him and repent of your sins, but he died on the cross. This is the beautiful thing. 
to also, if you put your trust in him, to give you his righteousness. To give you the status that not even Adam had. Something even better than Adam. Because Adam, we don't know if there's, he was, had the Spirit of God in him or not, but we know for sure we are promised the Spirit of God in us. God doesn't just forgive you. He gives you credit as if you lived as Christ's life. That's just crazy, isn't it? And I used this illustration in the past. I married my wife, and I, I came to the States, and I was pretty dirt poor. I was from seminary in Romania. I came to seminary in the States, and I didn't have as much savings, almost none. And my wife was able to work a little bit before we got married. She had the car. But in the moment I said yes, or she said yes, her bank account became mine. Woo! All of a sudden, I was in possession of a car. I had all this money in the bank. I was like, man, all of a sudden, her belongings became mine. Now, this is a trivial comparison. Imagine Christ. He is the heir of all things. He is the one who fulfilled righteousness on our behalf. And the Bible says that when we believe in him, he gives us his righteousness. That's God's solution for our sin. God is looking, by the way, for you today. And he brought you here, I believe, if you're not a believer, to tell you, where are you? To ask you this very simple question. Where are you? And some of you are still in hiding. You're trying to put on a nice, smiley face. Everything is just great. But you know that down deep, things are not great. If you had to die tonight, I don't know if you would say that I'm going to go to heaven. And tonight God says and asks you, where are you? He's looking for you. And he wants to give you forgiveness. And by the way, if you've done any of the sins I mentioned, God says that he is willing to forgive and there's no sin under heaven who, that is not going to be forgiven by him. Let all the shame and all the guilt be brought to the cross of Christ. Let him forgive you. Let him embrace you. He actually came, the Bible says several times in the gospel, he came to save sinners. He doesn't come to save people who are righteous. He comes to save people who recognize that they are sinners. Are you a sinner tonight? If you think, think that you're a sinner and you haven't received the forgiveness of Christ, he invites you to come in. He wants to clothe you with his son's righteousness. He wants to give you a new identity, and he wants to give you power over sin. He wants to give you a new life where you're going to have more victories than losses over the struggles in your life. He wants to give you a new identity. You want to receive him. You want to come to him. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about the subject about your image in us and how sin has distorted so many things, has distorted our relationship with you, our relationship with others, our sexuality, the way we think about this world, the way we think about creation, the way we think about you. I pray that tonight, whoever you brought here tonight, Lord, I pray that you would touch hearts. If there are people here who don't know you, I pray that they would come to knowledge of you tonight, that they would give their lives to you. And if there are here people who do know you, 
who have been struggling, Lord, with any type of temptation, I pray that they would cry out to you and they would know that unless your spirit is at work in them, we cannot have victory over our temptations. So help us to cling closely to you, Jesus, as believers. Help us to fight sin on a regular basis and to kill sin in our lives, knowing that if we don't, sin will kill us. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be very determined to be more like you. Do not let the world dictate how we live our lives, but let the word, your word, your holy word, dictate how we should live. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen.